Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we begin by speaking to Dipali Mukhopadhyay about her book, co-authored with Kimberly Howe, Good Rebel Governance, uh, about Syria and the attempts to support uh, governance in rebel-controlled areas. We then turn to an all-too-current event, uh, Hamas and Gaza. We speak to Imad al-Sus, a young Palestinian scholar who has worked in Gaza and has a book in development on Hamas and shares his thoughts on the nature of the organization and its strategy. Uh, thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Dipali Mukhapadeh, who's the co-author, along with Kimberly Howe, of the new book, Good Rebel Governance, Revolutionary Politics and Western Intervention in Syria. It literally just came out with Cambridge University Press. Uh, Dipali, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we've been you know, interacting with each other for quite a long time, and you've been working for most of your career on Afghanistan. And so could you tell us a little bit about what brought you and Kimberly to this topic of, of rebel governance in Syria and what made you decide to write this book? Well, thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm thrilled to be having my first conversation about this book with you and on your terrific podcast. So as you said, since we've known each other and for me since 2003, 2004, I've been working in, in and on Afghanistan and Kim has did her doctoral work in Colombia and has been doing a lot of research on political violence and intervention in the African continent. So Syria was very much a new case for us to explore. And for me, it came through the experience of teaching. I was around the time of the eruption of the civil war had started teaching a course on the politics and law of intervention. And of course, as a function of that class, began to understand and explore the Syrian case. And in a sort of unexpected turn of events for me, what I started to notice in the Syrian case was the parallels to earlier episodes in Afghanistan, pre 9-11 actually experiences in Afghanistan. And I was particularly interested in the kinds of governance that appeared to be forming in the midst of very active violence and very active conflict. And also the dynamics of an international community, of course, looked very different in the 2011, 2012 period than it had during the Cold War, but geopolitical struggles, both at the international level, at the regional level, that were mapping onto different forms of support for different actors in the conflict. And so for me, my interest was first sort of trying to understand how governance emerges in the midst of conflict. And also to think through what is the role of outside actors in encouraging or cultivating particular forms of governance and how do those dynamics unfold? So that's really where the interest began. And one of the really key themes that runs through it is that, as you said, that combination of like the bottom up formation of local governance and then the effects of the introduction of large scale international aid through various intermediaries. Talk us through that a little bit in terms of what you observed in those interactions. Yeah. So, you know, for most of the post 9-11 period, scholars like myself who were interested in intervention in this part of the world had seen massive interventions happening, giving of aid, giving of military support to quote unquote good regimes to fight quote unquote bad rebels. And what we saw in the Syrian case was a kind of inversion of this logic. So you have a regime that's authoritarian and very brutal in its response to protest politics and an a oh, set of international actors that are looking to support the opposition. And in the case of Western governments, so the United States and Canada and European countries, trying to do that, trying to support a particular type of opposition, what they, what we call the kind of good rebels, but doing it not in the maximalist ways that had been undertaken and largely failed in Afghanistan and Iraq, but kind of doing it from the side. And so what we, Kim and I flew to the Southern Turkish uh, town of Gaziantep on the border with Syria. 
And we began to look at this sort of marketplace that was emerging in which members of the Syrian opposition were interacting with a lot of the same actors we had seen in other parts of the world, Western donors, governments, and so on. And what we found was that these Western actors were trying to shape the opposition in a particular liberal democratic image. And some of that was resonant with what the opposition itself was aiming to do, but some of it was really out of touch with what was happening inside Syria. And so our interest began there and kind of evolved to think, well, what is it that people who are living through war are looking for from their rebel governors? And how does that match with or, or really not match with what Western countries are looking for when they support a movement like the Syrian opposition? And so you talk about this in terms of uh, what you call competitive state building and and really explore like the connection uh, for better or for worse between effective service provision and political legitimacy. But it doesn't seem quite as linear in your telling as uh, I think some of our theories would have predicted. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we began from a logic that was, you know, we could describe as Weberian in the sense that we had seen both in the literature, but also the logic of donors and governments for several decades, this idea that if a government that is in peril, and in this case, a rebel government that's trying to establish itself, wants to become authoritative, wants to achieve a kind of authoritative presence in, in its community, it needs to provide public goods and services. And it needs to do that through a kind of rationalized bureaucracy over time. And that's what the literature told us. And that's that's was sort of the logic of intervention for a long time. And really, it's quite hard to, to study what are the alternative possibilities or paths, right? I mean, one can look back historically and say, well, actually, a lot of governing authority has emerged over time in a number of different ways. But what we were interested in is in the moment, as people are living through war, as people are struggling and suffering and facing kind of a cataclysmic set of events and are both incredibly hopeful about a totally different new political possibility for them, but also are sort of staring into the abyss of the collapse of their own communities and societies. What do they need from their leaders? And we were fortunate enough, and I'm happy to talk about how we did this, we were fortunate enough to have different forms of data and different access to Syrian interlocutors and their voices. And what we found was, yes, to some degree, they're concerned with the material conditions okay. around them. But there's more and there's more to what they're looking for from their leaders. And a lot of that is less tangible. And it's frankly very much beyond the capacity of a Western aid organization, right? And actually, when you're looking to see from your leaders that they're struggling with you, they're suffering with you, they're people that you know, they're people sharing these experiences of war with you, the more that they are distracted by outside actors, the less they're able to do that for you. So there's actually a real tension that exists for opposition actors that are both trying to rule with authority and make themselves known on the international stage. And that tension, I think, is not exclusive to rebel governance, but it's particularly salient. And that's sort of what we began to really delve deep into. Yeah, I think everyone who worked on Syria, and you certainly give ample examples of this in your book, was kind of aware of that disconnect between kind of the so-called hotel revolutionaries and then like the, oh. the, the, the councils on the ground. You approach this through kind of a, a novel twist, I would say, I would say theoretically, by hearkening back to Ibn Khaldun and this concept of asabiya, which uh, you kind of use to try and develop this, where these solidarities come from. So explain why you did this and what that helps you to see. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of the literature on rebel governance, for very good reason, thinks about rebel governments as aspiring states. And so the theorizing about rebel governing authority is really linked quite closely to how do states govern and how do governments in states govern well. 
And so that is anchored, as I said, in this sort of material set of connections, but more broadly, it assumes a kind of stability, a kind of rationality in terms of the conditions within which governance emerges. And we were just, as we were reading the, the testimonies of Syrians who were describing life inside, for example, a besieged suburb or inside um, Raqqa under the Islamic State or Aleppo um, in opposition controlled neighborhoods, it just, the, the notion that something could be a stable, solid, predictable, rational outcome seemed almost absurd. You know, it just didn't map onto the conditions that we were reading. And what's extraordinary about Ibn Khaldun's work is it's incredibly ambitious in describing governance in this cyclical way, right? He, he was trying to explain how do ruling regimes emerge in an authoritative way and then how do they decay over time and collapse and become vulnerable to revolution again so part of what we realized is in his work he sort of spends a lot of time talking about the rough and tumble life uh the bedouin life the life in the desert the the sort of conditions from within which revolutionary ferment emerges and he talks about the stable, rational, sedentarized life of, of regimes that have existed for a long time as not an outcome that you want to strive towards, but actually a kind of dangerous place mm -hmm. from which you become open, right, to, to threat. And so it struck us that his real attention to this kind of rough and tumble and the struggle and the suffering and the uncertainty that was a much better analog to what's going on when rebellion is happening. Like that, those are the conditions within which rebel governors have to establish themselves. It's really so very different from the conditions within which states are ruling. And really for us, it felt like a very logical leap then to say, let's draw on the work of a scholar who was really centrally concerned with the emergence of revolutionary authority and use that as a theoretical guide. And frankly, we, we really wouldn't have gone there, I think, had we not been doing a kind of inductive work where we were reading these testimonies of Syrians living through war and finding that the descriptions they had of what they appreciated what they were concerned about, what they aspired to. It just didn't match any of the Western theoretical work that we were reading. Interesting. So that's so, how we Yeah. So before we get into talking about some of the specific uh, uh, case studies that you looked at, um, let's talk a little bit about how you gathered information and the sources of data, because there's some kind of innovative and unusual uh, access that you were able to get, which gave you some insights here, which I think I haven't seen in a lot of other kind of work on on a similar on similar topics. Yeah, that's right. So both Kim and I have spent, um, you know, a decade doing field work in countries, in sites of conflict collecting the data ourselves, that was very central to who we were as scholars. And so when we became interested in the Syrian case, we flew to Southern Turkey in 2013 with a plan to cross the border into Northern Syria and begin field work. And fortunately, we were very strongly advised against doing that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we both felt we had substantial experience doing pretty risky research. And yet what we were told by a variety of actors, including actors who were doing security analysis for NGOs, for donors and so on, but also journalists and others, was that the conditions in Syria were shifting very, very quickly in terms that were really dangerous for foreigners of any kind. That's around and the time all the journalists were getting kidnapped. and That's correct. That's around the time. And it's, also, it's around the time when the Islamic State was beginning to cohere into, you know, Al-Qaeda um, was splitting and Islamic State was emerging. And 
and yes, and journalists and essentially anyone that's already in Afghanistan to a significant degree, the notion that scholars or journalists or humanitarian aid workers are a separate untouchable category that don't face antagonism, that norm had eroded, but that was really clear in Syria. So we found ourselves in a position which was, well, we're in Gaziantep and we're actually facing the same limitations that donor actors are facing. And so our methods began to mirror the methods of these interveners, you know, where we basically saw, you know, these are NGOs that also can't go in over the border or trying to understand and influence events over the border. And this whole ecosystem became, became clear to us that Syrians are coming to Turkey to make their case to learn the things that they are told they should learn about being good Democrats, to collect whatever kinds of aid and training they can get, and ultimately to get recognition internationally as a legitimate alternative to the Assad regime. And in those interactions, those interactions themselves became of great interest to us. So we spent a lot of time over the next several years doing qualitative research in that part of the of, of the region. Over time, that meant that we got to know some of the donors quite well, including USAID's um, affiliate, one of its subsidiaries, the Office of Transitional Initiatives. And some of your listeners may know OTI. I think of it sort of as like the renegade wing of USAID, right? They go into countries um, with a lighter footprint that are very unstable or very insecure at moments of pretty serious conflict and try and shape dynamic political dynamics on the ground through aid provision. And one of the things, you know, at this moment, 2013, 14, 15, that was happening in the aid world was this sense that aid organizations should also be learning organizations. They shouldn't just be doing the work, they should be doing their work using data, using um, analysis and research. And so OTI had been collecting substantial amounts of data that we didn't know about at the time through various subsidiary organizations inside the country. And we learned in 2016, having been on the ground for a while, that they had this massive trove um, of data and in effect had been collecting information from Syrians, interviews, you know, with Syrians in 26 different communities, it's some of which they were working, some of which they were not, um, between 2014 and 2016. So it took about a year for us to convince them to turn that data over to us. I don't think they had done anything like that before. As you say, it's a pretty unusual arrangement, in part because we told them we are going to publish whatever we learn, whether it makes you look good or bad. You know, it's very possible it's not going to be a very flattering portrait of the effect of aid. You, we will afford you the opportunity to tell us if we've made any factual errors um, or misrepresentations. But other than that, it's it's sort of our intellectual prerogative to make the arguments that we make. And they agreed to that with with some substantial conversation. So that afforded us the opportunity to read 1,100 long form, to have access to 1,100 long form interviews, 13,000 surveys, um, through which we were able to do a whole range of different forms of analysis. There are obviously huge limitations um, that we spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about when you didn't design the, the data collection process yourself, when you didn't do the data collection process yourself. But one of the things that we're really interested in as, as two scholars of political violence is how do you study places that you can't Mm -hmm. ethically or realistically enter right do you are there ways to do that are there ways to do that transparently ethically creatively that that was a part of this journey for us is to think that through well that's really interesting and uh, i think a lot of people will be kind of 
exploring those kinds of options in the future. Let's talk about your actual, um, the actual kind of the, the substance of the book then. So you look in depth at four case studies, uh, looking at variations in, you know, kind of the quality and the nature of rebel governance. You've got Raqqa, Saraka, Daraya, and Aleppo, and you see very different patterns of, of rebel governance emerging in each of them. Why don't you walk us through those a little bit, why you chose those particular communities and, you know, kind of the headline, I suppose, of like what you saw in each of them, then we can talk a little bit more about them in depth. Yeah, so we started, as I said, with a pretty straight materialist kind of hypothesis that if you have a rebel governor who can consolidate control over violence and provide public services, that should be a recipe for establishing governing authority. And the logical place to start with that, in some sense, from that singular explanation, was the Islamic State in Raqqa, which had this kind of extraordinary administrative capacity that it established. And of course, most people will know that the Islamic State in Raqqa was much more than just a set of institutions that controlled violence and provided services. It had this very radical ideological project. Uh, it had a kind of terrorizing quality to it. It had a whole international relations posture that was unique in a variety of ways. But we thought, let's see what, what work politically does control over coercion and substantial capital do. And what we found reading interviews from people who lived under the Islamic State was they were very appreciative of the efficiency of these public services and goods, some of them appreciated the kind of order that the Islamic State had produced. But there was a kind of paradoxical presentation in a lot of interviews where people said, we really appreciate these things. And also, we fundamentally reject the ideological project of this movement. We, we reject the aspiration of this movement to establish a caliphate in our community. We don't know who these people are and they're not moving towards the goal that we had when we took to the streets in the first place. Raqqa was a first, a very important first mover in the, in the opposition um, early on. And so that began us thinking, okay, there's some things happening materially and then there's some other non-material dynamic at play. So that's where Ibn Khaldun's argument came in for us. And we said, well, let's think about what are the different forms of connection to use Tilly, Charles Tilly's language or solidarity or Asabiya to use Ibn Khaldun's language that don't have anything to do with how powerful you are in a material sense and how are those playing out? So, from Raqqa, we then said, what are other communities we can look at that have different combinations of material capacity and different combinations of solidarities that these institutions seem to be availing themselves of? So we looked at um, Sarakib as a community and a, a governing body, the Sarakib Council, that had substantial control over coercion that had a lot of aid from Western governments, but that also seemed able to tap into these forms of connectivity. And what we found was this was a pretty incredible kind of authority that this council could establish, but in a dialogical sort of experience with its community. So when it went astray in these non-material ways, when it seemed to be behaving in terms that didn't acknowledge the revolutionary project, people took to the streets and revolted against the council and demanded, you, you need to come back to the project that we intended. And they did. And so they were able to establish something quite interesting in, in Sarakib that we analogize to a kind of a limited access order to use the North um, et al language in which you had armed actors and non-armed actors working together, capturing a lot of the benefits of being in charge of a rich council, mm -hmm. being checked by their own publics and sort of course correcting. And that was a that looked like a pretty substantial form of authority. So we thought, okay, so clearly connection matters here, but is it enough? What if you don't have 
capital? Or what if you don't have control over coercion? How much can you do? We were trying to think about what are the limits of connection in the context of war. And so that's why we looked at Daraya and Aleppo. So Daraya was a besieged suburb of Damascus that had no, no aid flowing in. Um, and people were living under conditions essentially of starvation for a substantial amount of time. And what we found in, in the interviews that we read from Daraya was an extraordinary thing, which was that the armed actors had subordinated themselves to the civilian control of the local council. Um, and that whatever meager forms of capital existed were being managed by that council. And so we could see that connection, these solidarities, the ways in which these communities thought of themselves as connected to one another and then connected to their council, those solidarities were mediating the management of coercion and the limited forms of capital. But as some of, you know, one of our interlocutors said, like you can't eat words, right? I mean, you need food to survive. And there were limits on what this council could do for its people. On the other hand, in Aleppo, you had a very rich council. Um, so it was capital rich with very deep connective ties to its community. But it was in one of the most contested parts of the country when it came to coercion, right? Almost every actor that was a violent actor in Syria had some presence in Aleppo, fighting for territory and contestation. And so what we found in that case was, unlike in um, any of the other cases where coercion was under control, in this case, the council began to look kind of like an NGO, like a popular NGO, a really well, um, resourced NGO, but ultimately people did not feel this council is in charge because they knew Jabhat al-Nusra is also there. These various armed brigades are also there. So really what we did with these four cases, if you kind of think of like a Venn diagram, which we have in the book, we, we were sort of thinking when you have coercion, when you have capital, when you have connection in different combinations, what kind of authority emerges? And I think what we found was two things. One, that too much emphasis, both in the literature and in policy circles, is placed on material strength. And there's a lot of work that non-material forms of solidarity, of politics, of connection, there's a lot of work they're doing, but there are also limits to what those solidarities can do. At the end of the day, civil war is a kind of Darwinian struggle. And if you cannot control violence in your territory, you will not be able to establish yourself as an authoritative actor. And Solidarity may mediate the ways in which you use those limited resources that you have, but it can't substitute for them. And so that's 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 really where we landed. And that position in the last part of the book to then think about, well, what are the implications of that for interveners mm -hmm. and for policymakers who are trying to shape the facts on the ground? And it's quite a dilemma that it creates because the uh, the provision of material, uh, you know, goods from the outside, as you document in several of the of the case studies, does seem to have the the the, the effect of distancing those councils from those kinds of uh, connected solidarities, which you see is so important. So it's it's quite a perverse consequence of external support. That's exactly it, Mark. I mean, for me, that that is the most disturbing and kind of most important lesson from the book. And it's kind of most exemplified, not in the local councils, but in the, the governing bodies in Turkey that we write about at the end of the book that were meant to bring everything together, right? You can have many local councils, some of which are really thriving and achieving truly revolutionary political change. But if they're existing in a neighborhood of a city or even in a whole city, but not a whole province or not a whole region, that doesn't add up to a replacement in this case for the Assad regime. So you need some kind of national aggregating set of institutions. And the Syrian interim government, which was based in Turkey, was meant to be that. And they faced, I think, the most fundamental dilemma in this sense, which is that international relations are organized 
around states and statehood and sovereign recognition. And so you will never, as several of our colleagues who've written on rebel governance have argued, you will never win if you're not recognized by the international community as the new government of a country. So they had no choice but to engage not only for that recognition, but to keep getting that material support, to keep making the argument for aid. To, they had no choice but to engage in this outward facing political project. But the ways in which Syrians talked about these individuals who made up this interim government was so damning. I mean, they've really described them, as you said, as a kind of five-star hotel opposition. And one of the most colorful quotes in the book one of our interlocutors said, even Angelina Jolie isn't scared to come into Syria and meet with us. And these people who claim to represent us are sitting in Istanbul. And that dilemma, I think part of what we wanted to do, I think often opposition movements or governments like the Karzai government that I studied for a long time, they're vilified as being corrupted, as being out of touch with their people. And a lot of that may end up being true, but part of what we wanted to reveal was that's not a bug, that's by design. International relations have been designed. Aid organizations organize themselves that way. Defense ministries organize themselves that way. Western powers want to control the flow of resources and they want to control the flow of of diplomatic recognition. And so actors that are less powerful, and they may be governments, but the least powerful are rebel movements, right? They don't even have the ostensible privilege of sovereign recognition. They're in a position in which they have to keep doing this dance between, and they exist then in this liminal space where they're between the international and the local. And no matter what they're doing, they're sort of failing in one way or another. And it becomes almost impossible then to cohere into something that is authoritative, both to the people who are living through the war and to your international patrons. And that's a real, it's a massive dilemma for what I think are a set of Western actors that often sincerely are looking to support democratic or revolutionary politics, but it's a profoundly tragic reality, most of all, for the people who are living through that conflict and who risked everything to make this kind of revolutionary political change and are really at best gonna receive some tractors or some blankets or a laptop or training on data protection, but they're not going to be able to secure revolutionary change in their country, even a decade out. And that's where we are, right, in Syria today. Well, thanks to Polly. Uh, we've been speaking about the new book, Good Rebel Governance, Revolutionary Politics and Western Intervention in Syria. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this week we're joined once again by Imad Al-Sus of the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology in Halle, Halle, Germany. Um, uh, Imad, thank you so much for joining us in what is a very difficult time. Thank you for having me, Mark, always. So you've been researching uh, Hamas for many years. Uh, you have a number of articles that we've talked about on the podcast before. You have a book uh, it, coming out on Hamas soon. And you're one of the few researchers who, who's been able to spend significant time in Gaza really trying to understand what makes Hamas as an organization work. So I was hoping we could start by perhaps you could just tell us a bit about your research with Hamas and kind of what you've learned about it that uh, perhaps isn't reflected in, in kind of mainstream understandings of the organization. Um, I, I think what is special about Hamas, it's, it's organization. What does it mean that if you understand the internal dynamics, the internal institutions, the way Hamas train and qualify its human capital, you will grasp an important understanding of Hamas, not only within, for example, fighting occupation, for example, during Oslo under repression in Gaza and West Bank of the PA, or during the Second Intifada, the way they were able to recover after the period of repression during Oslo, or how they won elections in 2005, which is the local elections, and the legislative election 
in 2006 when they were able to, and they got the majority, the qualified majority in the parliament and formed two governments, and also to run Gaza for 17 years under a massive blockade. I mean, financial, military, mm -hmm. and economic. And w the way I started to under, uh, understand Hamas, I started to understand Hamas, how they uh, train and qualify their human capital, and then how this uh, human capital is distributed within different institutions, different ranks, different branches, and how they link between the movement itself and the, uh, the public and their local communities. So mm -hmm. Hamas... To understand Hamas in the macro level, you need to understand Hamas in the micro level, not within Hamas itself, but also within the external local community. This is the perspective that helps you to grasp Hamas while in the opposition before 2006 and while in office after 2007 in Gaza until now. This is, in general, what interests uh, interest me mm -hmm. to understand and to get Hamas. And this is why I highlight the term organization always about Hamas. So in one of your articles, you talk about uh, this as a way of understanding the Muslim Brotherhood, but your argument, as I understand it, is that this is not your typical Muslim Brotherhood organizations. There's some very spe specific things about Hamas which make it stand out from other uh, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood or Anahda or the movements that many Western researchers are more familiar with. Um, yes. I, I would say that Hamas, when it was the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood before 1987, we know that Hamas was founded in December 14, 2007, as a reaction of the outbreak of the first... 1987. Yes, in 1987, yeah. yes. And, and before that, the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood was a traditional, like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, that religious based on education, religious uh, speeches by imam, uh, Friday sermons, etc. But when Hamas was founded as a military and political branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, it engaged with the Palestinian Intifada. And it gained its popularity by, in the battlefield, and demonstration against the Israeli occupation. So Hamas became more conceptualized, became a more national liberation movement in, uh, in Palestine. And also, very important, in the early 90s, Hamas reformed the whole organization because Israel was able to repress the movement in 89, 1989, two years after the outbreak of the Antifada and two years after the foundation of Hamas. So Hamas reformed and structured the whole movement and Hamas became the umbrella movement for the, Muslim, the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas itself, which is supposed to be a military and political branch and make a very modern structure. And the people inside Hamas who led this people who are experienced to have PhDs in organization and management theory. And you, this is why you can see within Hamas, like a linkage between the traditional heritage of the organization of the Muslim Brotherhood, like the family system, education, preparation, etc., and modern style of organization, which is, if we say, organic and, and mechanic, you know? Mm -hmm. And what is special about this? Hamas was... When I say modern organization, like you can see, for example, the level of consultancy and legitimacy within the decision-making process within Hamas is much higher than other Muslim Brotherhood movements. It's more institutionalized, streamlined within the institution, the decision-making, the hierarchy, etc. And this is what makes Hamas a little bit more, more uh, let's say, transparent, uh, more participant for the members than other uh, Muslim Brotherhood movements in, uh, in the Arab world. Now, when you say invest in human capital, what do you mean by that precisely? Invest by human capital, I think, if we want to, to take the most important element within Hamas organization, you will see the human being, how Hamas turn an average Palestinian. He could be like educated, he has a good marks, he could be an engineer, but how they qualify to be an active member within Hamas and within the social community. And this member has different ranks. And his upward mobility within the different ranks doesn't come from his previous education at university. This is counting. This is very important. But his engagement with the activities of the movement and his engagement with social activities in the local communities. And this is, this is how Hamas, the member of Hamas, is not only learning and prepared by the education of the movement, but also by political practice. 
And this is the, the Hamas member that Hamas want to create. This is why it invests in the human being or the member of Hamas heavily. And it was different ranks until he became the leaders. If you, for example, after he passed all the ranks and he became a leader, he, for example, is a candidate for the political bureau, for example. And if he won, he can also elect to be the leader of Hamas. This is the process, and it's a line that open for all the members if they are qualified to do so. And this is why I said the decision-making and legitimacy is streamlined within Hamas more than other uh, Muslim Brotherhood movements in the Arab world. This is what I meant exactly. Now, other studies of Hamas have emphasized uh, ideology, and they've emphasized the, speci the specificities of Hamas in terms of its ideology, its attitudes towards violence, its particular views of Islam. How do you rate the importance of ideology against these organizational uh, uh, features that you've just been describing? Um, you know, Mark, there is a lot of scholars, even philosophers, they prioritize ideas over social practice, over organization, that you, have, you need to need first the vision, and then you employ this vision and you try to correct it. I studied it vice versa. I took the social practices and then I went to the organization in the macro level and then I took the organization in the macro level of the Palestinian society and I examined the role of ideology and religion there. I took it the other way around. And I found that ideology and religion are important if they became institutionalized into social practices, not only within Hamas, but also within Hamas members and their interaction with their local community in all Palestine, because the local community Palestine is divided into small areas, bigger areas, governorate, department, etc. Right? Gaza, for example, a department, and Hamas has four departments. And this is how Hamas spread. So through social practices, I examined ideology and religion. And in this regard, I give more importance to social practices and say Hamas, why Hamas, for example, was able to survive the pressure and to survive volatile environment while in office. I said because the ability that these social practices got, for example, the ethics from religion and from ideology to cement them. So the, the, the Hamas, member, Hamas member has a goal, not only through social practice or routine that could be boring, no, but integrated with ethics that taken from ideology and religion. And this is where the importance of religion and ideology mark. And if you separate it, in my opinion, it's not that important. It has to be there. Interesting. So in terms of the organization, obviously you would expect that Hamas would evolve in different ways in Gaza, where it's in power, and versus in the West Bank, where it's you know confronting the Palestinian Authority and, um, and and operating more in an underground capacity, do you see substantial differences in the organization strategy or or ethos of of Hamas in Gaza and the West Bank? Uh, of course, because in uh, Hamas in West Bank is the way Hamas was in Gaza before two thousand six and before two thousand five because it's still under, uh, under repression of the PA. So it's still underground. It's, it, it is evolving, evolving. It is adapting. But there is, you can say, I would say there is a transition within Hamas. You know, literally a transition within Hamas in Gaza, not in the West Bank. When you become a government before, for, I, I give you for example, uh, Mark. For example, before 2006, before Hamas became the government, mainly in Gaza after 2007, the member was voluntary, is not paid. He's just a member of Hamas. He's, for example, a teacher, he's a worker, and he paid, for example, this 2.5% of his salary for the movement, and he participated as a voluntary member. But after 2007, Hamas formed almost totally a new administration in Gaza, maybe except for the health sector and the social affairs, which is very limited. But the whole administration of Gaza was filled more or less of Hamas members or Hamas sympathizers. So these people became paid. So the role of Hamas, a human member of human capital, it became different from before. And this is why you have to deal with Hamas differently as a government that responsible, that responsible, for example, for the lives of the, of the Palestinians to provide goods, to provide services. And this is an obligation, not like before you provide the Hamas, provide the public and the public say, thank you, Hamas. Now, no, Hamas is blamed if they don't provide enough. And this is why, Mark, I will jump for something but related. Mm -hmm. Hamas government popularity is very low in Gaza. 
but Hamas as a whole, as a resistance sitter in West Bank and Gaza, is high. But as a government, it doesn't have popularity. It has a massive loss of popular support regarding the government role, well, the governmental role. And this is the major difference, I think. Um, well, let's talk about that. There's a lot of controversy about uh, the, the place of, uh, of Hamas within society, within Gaza, and its popularity and its representativeness. And that's obviously become an issue as Israel has launched uh, the current uh, bombing campaign and beginning an invasion, um, potentially. And so let's elaborate on this a bit more your distinction between the hamas as a government and hamas as a movement within society how does it fit within broader gazan society uh, uh, you, the broader gaza society right now or before this attack why don't we start with before and then we can talk about now um i think i think you can differentiate between two things within hamas hamas as a government and hamas as a resistance and social group hamas as a movement Mm -hmm. You can see separation. How you? Some people say no, but they are interconnected. The leader of Hamas is the leader of the administration of Gaza. This is true, but institutionally, there is a separation, very clear separation. For example, I give you from, for example, the popular support. Hamas, after 2014, when they they said they achieved and again achieved some victory in Shijaiya after the Israeli ground. Uh, invasion in 2014, Hamas regained its popularity, but as a resistance group. During the war uh, in 2011 and 2021, uh, when there was an invasion of, uh, of the Israeli troop or police against the worshippers in Jerusalem during Ramadan, the holy month of, of Muslims, Hamas waged the war and attacked West Jerusalem, etc. Hamas uh, was a turning point for its social and resistance branch, a turning point of its popularity. It was able to connect all Palestine, and it, it claimed really, realistically, as the leader of the Palestinian resistance toward liberation. But as a government, Mark, I think it uh, didn't achieve this, didn't gain this. And this is, I think, the, the, the separation between Hamas as a resistance group and social group and Hamas as a government. And so Hamas as a government, you're saying, tends to be judged more by the economy and its ability to provide security and kind of the normal things that any government would be judged by. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, there is something important about Palestinians, Mark, that uh, when the group uh, pay a, a dear sacrifice for the cause, the movement become popular. This has happened to the left wing in the 60s and 70s, to Fatah for three decades, and to Hamas now. And it could be in the future uh, Islamic Jihad. You know what I mean? It's always the one who pay the, and sacrifice for the, for the liberation of Palestine and fight for Palestine. He became the defender of the Palestinians and he gained the most popularity. And I think as a resistance group, Hamas is the leader of the Palestinian resistance. I can do that easily. I can claim that. So before we talk about uh, the current period, I wanted to ask about two more two more things about the background. Um, first is this question of Hamas and the use of violence. Um, obviously, during the Oslo period, um, this was a major issue with terrorist attacks and derailing the Oslo process. And there's a long history of the different ways in which Hamas has used violence over the years. How do you see them thinking about this in strategic terms or, or in ideological terms, although it sounds like you would be more inclined towards a strategic explanation? I would, you know, uh, I will take you to point zero again, Mark, and mm -hmm, explain mm -hmm. this. Let's take the organization. Hamas is the very beginning as a very small group, the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood. And the organization was not that important at the very beginning uh, in comparison with the BLO factions, which was dominant, the national, we call it the national uh, mm -hmm. camp. Hamas was not giving much attention to the world view. But while Hamas became growing, especially in the Second Intifada and when become a government, Hamas realized the world view is also central and has to be important. So Hamas renegotiated, for example, the suicide bombing and became targeting civilians. It happened but it's not the strategic objective of Hamas the way it was in the early 90s or early 2000. And this has to do with the growth of the organization. 
and the transition of the organization mm -hmm. into government. So it has a growth and institutional and a transitional explanation why Hamas has changed its strategy toward violence or resistance. And how would you describe that strategy now? Again, before we get into the current period, but how has that evolved since that transition to government? What is, what is their justification or strategic purpose in using violence? I, I think regarding what happened now, it has to do with Hamas as a resistance group, which is more a decision of the military. Mm. And, and for example, the head, of the, uh, the head of the administration of Gaza, Mark, he's coming from the military. So there is no clash between the political and the military in, uh, in Gaza. Mm. And from this, we can, we can say Hamas as a resistance group, Hamas as a social group that launched this attack, not Hamas as a government. Interesting. Okay, the, the last question I wanted to ask before we talk about the current period is about the Great March of Return back in 2019. You wrote an excellent article about it back then, and I really feel like this is very relevant to Hamas decision-making in the current period. Could you describe a bit about what happened, why Hamas behaved the way that it did, and the outcomes of that episode? I, I think... I think the uh, the great marches of return that happened started in 2018 and interrupted by the outbreak of COVID-19. Right. I think the idea the idea that happened of the pressure on Hamas government after uh, the coup in Egypt. After the coup in Egypt and the coup after one year uh, one year one month there was a massive operation from the Israeli operation 2014. Hamas reached into the point that we cannot liberate Palestine by by using rockets and make a big confrontation with Israel. And the situation in, in Gaza, because the blockade intensified by Israel and Egypt, etc. So Hamas wanted to find ways. And this is why in 2015, there was a popular protest. Hamas leader at the time, Khaled Mishal, came directly into the news saying this is a third intifada. So Hamas was interested in this popular protest. And then there was, uh, when, when President uh, uh, Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, then Hamas developed in this experience because it was not only Hamas, but also civil society organization in Gaza. So they developed the great marches of, uh, of return. And I think they achieved uh, successes, but the way Israel reacted to the great marches of return uh, weakened the people inside Hamas who brought the popular protest. By the way, Mark, from my interviews, there was a division inside Hamas. You know, Hamas normally agree on one strategy. Mm -hmm. But regarding this strategy, there was no consensus inside Hamas. Hamas is famous with consensus. But in this strategy, there were no consensus. But when Israel reacted and was killing uh, tens, and one day once killed 75 civilians, Hamas people, but this is useless. Why do we have to send them to the border to die? And then when came COVID-19 also, it was meaningless to send people to the border. But how Hamas succeeded to gain, to gain its popular protest, but as I mentioned, the 2021 uh, war. Hamas gained its popularity as a resistance group through uniting Jerusalem and Gaza as one unit and then represent all Palestinians. And this is afterwards, the voices inside Hamas that support popular protest were suppressed by this group and also suppressed by Israel killing civilians without Nonsense, you know? And I think this is where this, this internal group that's calling for popular protest, I think, uh, failed, let's say. Not completely. It could come mm -hmm. back again, but so far, no. Very interesting. So in terms of uh, Gaza itself beyond Hamas, I mean, I think that listeners are probably aware of just how difficult situation was in terms of the, the sanctions and the blockade and the repeated bombings and the like. Do you think that in the period leading up to, you know, the, the, this last, uh, this last uh, invasion, was there any particular spike in the level of suffering or the unpopularity of Hamas or anything else, which you think might have triggered this decision? Um, to me, I will take it frankly to me from the, all the examination of Hamas following in, in a daily basis, making interviews all the time. I think it was the principal reason. The principal reasons, and if you see that the people of Gaza are more close to Hamas than ever, you know, 
I think the way Israel is treating the people in Jerusalem and Al-Aqsa Mosque, it treated the West Bank, it treated the BA, it treated Gaza, the Palestinians, there is a kind of consensus mark within Palestinians that the Israelis, they don't deal with us as the human beings. And then the defense minister, he said it a few days ago, I'm dealing with animals. But this is the, the real situation. Now he declared it. And I think there is something very important, Mark. The Palestinian in Gaza realized since a few years that the plan is to expel them forcibly to Sinai, to Egypt, a kind of ethnic cleansing similar to 48. But what is interesting also, Mark, that Netanyahu, in his short speech, he mentioned 1948. And of course, right now, then, you, have, you have the United States attempting to create a humanitarian corridor to allow Gazans to flee to the Sinai. Yes, and some of the uh, Israeli officials yesterday, they were calling to Gazans to go to Sinai. And Netanyahu called Gazans, uh, Mark, leave Gaza. He said, leave Gaza. Leave Gaza where, Mark? To Tel Aviv? To Ashkelon? Of course he meant Egypt. So the people yeah. of Gaza know that. I think there is a, a, a lot of reasons why the people in Gaza are close to Hamas. They are not close to the ideology of Hamas. They are not close to the political approach of Hamas. Many of them are Fatah, but they realize the objective of, of Israel toward Gaza and toward all Palestine, by the way. So let's talk about the actual decision. Even to people who follow Hamas closely, this had to come as a shock, both the decision to launch this full-scale offensive, the success which they 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 realized in terms of breaching the wall, and then some of the uh, the 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 way that they behaved and some of the atrocities carried out while they were inside Israel and the, the taking of hostages back. Can you walk us through this at all now that you look in, at, at this decision in the broader context of what you understand about Hamas strategy? What was going on? Why did they do this? What? You know, Mark, while I never examined carefully the military wing of Hamas, but I will tell you surely something I'm aware of. If you hear somebody telling you that he was shocked that Hamas was planning to attack Gaza envelope, tell him, no, it's in the news since five years. And Hamas people were talking about, I have notes about this. I read it from Hamas briefing, you know, but I think they thought that they will go by tunnels. And, you know, Israel mm -hmm. built a wall under uh, Gaza. They never th thought that Hamas will come flying. They thought it will come under, and they have sensor underground. So if Hamas make a kind of explosion to open the cement wall, they will know about it. But they, but they know that Hamas was planning that. And, and I think Hamas, uh, look, I made, I, to tell you the truth, I made some interviews lately. And I think Hamas, I don't know, but this is not confident. Like always, I say this is a right. correct interview. I hear certain things that Hamas didn't thought that the Israeli army is that weak in the envelope of Gaza. I think they also were taken by surprise by the result, Mark, not by the operation. Hmm. Of course, they planned the operation in details. But the result, I think also they were taken by surprise, in my opinion, as us. Everybody was taken by surprise. Because you know the, the Gaza battalion in the Israeli army is the strongest battalion in the army. To so fall, to fall that easily, it's a surprise. So, so you think that they didn't expect to succeed to the extent that they did? Uh, but this is my opinion. Yeah. I think they were taken by surprise. Now, you you hear a lot uh, looking at, uh, at the decision-making. Uh, there's a popular discourse out there that uh, this was about Iran, that Iran told them to do it, and there's an Iran-backed um, operation. What, what, what are your thoughts on that and uh, the role Iran might have played in driving Hamas's decision here? I... You know, this is, I, 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 didn't, I don't have interviews, I don't have uh, evidence about yeah. this, but if I take political analysis, uh, everybody knows that Iran and Hezbollah are participating in the training of Hamas and uh, supporting Hamas militarily, information, logistically, etc. But I think the decision was taken by Hamas, but why, Mark? Here it's analysis, not academia. You know, as a Palestinian, I'm exposed to the routine videos, the daily videos. Before this attack, Hamas attack, there was around 15 to 20 days in daily basis we see videos, the settlers and the police in Al-Aqsa Mosque, Haram Sharif, 
increase the humiliation of women and people, hitting them, uh, throwing them with their feet in their head on the ground. All these videos make a popular protest and dissatisfaction with Hamas. You, you are saying we are a resistance group. You are useless. And they were really attack on Hamas. And I think Hamas, in my opinion, was forced to do so. Of course, you have also the Saudi, uh, the potential Saudi-Israeli uh, normalization mm -hmm. also. But I think the principal reasons was the political, sorry, the popular dissatisfaction of Hamas that is not intervening for Al-Aqsa Mosque. I think this is a key reason. Now, this isn't your main focus of research, but how do you assess the role of like the smaller parties and factions like Islamic Jihad and uh, the other small militant factions, as opposed to Hamas itself being the one in control and driving uh, driving this this incursion? Uh, look, there, Hamas followed two strategies in Gaza. The government and the legitimate use of force on the daily basis is in my hand and anybody confront me. I use a bloody confrontation against them. And it did this in 2009. But regarding the so-called uh, groups of resistance, uh, Hamas founded of, uh, um, it's called Ghurfat al-Amaliyat, the Operation Champar. And Hamas, this is started, I think, Mark 2006, more or less, but came into effect in 2017, more or less. That really Hamas start to share opinion, share weapons, share, uh, share cooperation with all groups. And Hamas empowered a lot of these groups. And you know, Islamic Jihad has a separate support from, uh, from Iran. And I think the favorite faction in Palestine is Islamic Jihad for Iran, not Hamas. This is my opinion. But Hamas, because of the strongest, Iran has to support them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they didn't stand with them again, uh, uh, with the Syrian regime. Hamas stood with the revolution of the Syrian people. And uh, this is why they favored the Islamic Jihad. But then the war in 2014, when Hamas did more, more or less a good job in the, against the ground invasion, I think Iran came back to Hamas and started to support it financially again after 2015. So uh, I think this is the situation more or less. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, it's impossible to really answer this, of course. Um, but uh, assuming that uh, what happens is what we expect to happen, which is some kind of uh, ground invasion by Israel into Gaza now, beyond just the obvious that there's going to be massive human suffering and destruction and it's going to be just a, a horrible situation, do you have any things that we might be looking at, we might expect in terms of how Gaza and how Hamas will, uh, will respond to, to such an invasion? I will share with you my readings since 2015. I heard in 2015, and I read about it, but it was not popular in the news, that there is something called deal of the century. And we knew about it in 2017, right? But I was reading about, uh, mm -hmm. about deal of the century in 2000, and I knew Tiranus and Afir will happen one year before. It was, that there was, uh, there was leaked information about it. And if you, all what I read leaked in 2015, Mark, is happening now. Do you know? One thing is missing, the expulsion of Palestinians into Sinai. This is what's missing. Everything is done. A normalization with Arab countries. Uh, Tirano Saranfir for Saudi Arabia to be close to, to, uh, to, uh, to Israel. Uh, the evacuation of the people in Sinai. All, all this happened. There is one left to end the so-called resistance in Gaza mm -hmm. and expel Palestinians into, into Sinai. This is, I think, the last thing that is still didn't happen in Palestine. This is my reading of the situation 2000, since 2015. And again, this is analysis, political analysis. Not, there is no direct evidence right. about this. Well, in terms, of, uh, in terms of what happens in Gaza, I mean, do you think that uh, Hamas is capable of holding out for an extended period against an Israeli invasion? And even if, if they did, what might that mean for their popularity uh, amongst Gazans if the war grinds on and uh, in, into this kind of long, bloody stalemate? You know, Mark, I'm afraid to tell you how I think about it and people think I'm biased. You know, I read Israeli army reports. Israeli army is not prepared into a ground fight. Not only from now, from the signing of Oslo Accord, the strategy of Israel changed. We want also strategic weapons. And when Netanyahu came to power in more or less in 2009, all the generals told him, 
our army, the battalions, are not ready for any ground invasion. Let's support them. He said, no, no, no. I only want the strategic weapons, F-35, F-16, because our enemy is Iran. These Palestinians are not confident. And he fired a lot of generals with efficiency. They, they wanted to improve the army. I don't think the Israeli army is qualified for, like, go to die in Gaza and kill Hamas. I don't think, I don't think they are prepared. They could win. I don't know. But I don't think they're prepared from the reports that I was reading about the army since many years. But you think Hamas, Hamas is well, training. You, you think Hamas, Hamas is prepared? Is a, is a training since 2002. This was the first invasion of a Nusayrat camp. You know what I mean? And then in Bit Hanun and Bit Lahi and then all the wars. But by the way, in 2008-2009, Israel was able to enter Gaza with tanks. Because Hamas didn't dis have this anti-tank weapons. Mm -hmm. But since Hamas has this anti-tank weapons, Hamas is training heavily. And I think the spokesperson of Hamas uh, branch wing, uh, military wing, he said 90% of our members are trained for a ground invasion. He declared this in Al Jazeera. So you hear a lot of people now, I guess this, this will be the last question, I suppose. Um, you hear a lot of people now on the Israeli side uh, talking about ending Hamas and eliminating Hamas as an organization, and that being the strategic goal of the invasion. Does that sound plausible to you? Uh, to tell the truth, I'm taken also by surprise what's going, Mark. I'm, I'm a little confused. Yeah. Uh, a lot of aren't, things that aren't we the all? First two, the, the first two days, I didn't understand anything, really. And I started to recover, try to analyze, read some reports missing, you know. I, I don't think now, the way I see things, that they are able to defeat Hamas in a ground invasion and end its rule. But maybe they enter partially in Gaza, make like a zone, etc., and then negotiate for the prisoners, etc. But enter inside Gaza, in this line of 45 kilometers, enter with the tanks, and to defeat Hamas, I don't think it's, it will be an easy task. I don't see it. Now I don't see it. Maybe in one month I tell you I was mistaken, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much. We've been speaking with Ahmad Asus about his uh, longtime research on uh, Hamas and Gaza. And thank you for taking the time to talk to us in uh, such a difficult time. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. This has been the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and thanks to Tapali Mukhopadhyay and Imad Al-Sus for joining us on this week's program. Yeah.